We'll be looking this evening at the entirety of Psalm 14, verses 1 through 7. Once again, in the, um, with the intention of understanding this psalm as we sing it each Lord's Day this month, uh, that we may take up this psalm and sing it with understanding each time. So let us give our careful hearing then to Psalm 14, verses 1 through 7. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let us pray briefly together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given to us the word of Christ to dwell in us richly as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we thank you uh, for these songs that come to us in the Psalter, and we thank you that we can open them up, not only sing them, but also study them and understand them, so that when we do sing them, we may sing them with great benefit and delight. And so, Lord, lead us and guide us in that endeavor this evening. Grant us richly of your Holy Spirit, that we may walk away this evening with an understanding, a clear understanding of Psalm 14. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Children, I have a question for you. Have you ever done anything wrong in your life think about it can you think of a time when you did something wrong something really wrong in fact that you tried to hide it from your parents for instance have you ever broken anything and then tried to hide that object or hide the fact that you had broken something perhaps costly or expensive or valuable uh, to your mom or your dad Well, I remember breaking something as a child. I remember breaking a very large window at a hotel room. In fact, it was a a window that my parents even warned me not to break. They said, don't be kicking your soccer ball in the direction of the hotel rooms because you'll hit one of those windows. Well, what's the first thing I did when my parents left to go get lunch? I went out into the front with my soccer ball And I kicked the soccer ball right through our own hotel room window. It shattered completely. Well, I ran to the office, as you can imagine at that point, and I asked the person at the front desk, can you please come fix a window quickly? In other words, come fix it before my parents return from lunch. 
Well, they laughed and said, well, we can't obviously fix a window like that. And there's going to be a lengthy cleanup of all the broken glass inside your room, uh, even on your beds. Uh, that room's going to have to be uh, shut down. You'll, you'll have to move rooms. I said, well, can we at least get a room close to that one? Maybe a similar number. Thinking maybe if I set up the room the exact same way, maybe my parents will forget and that we were in a different room when they returned from lunch. Well, they noticed all right when they returned. And I noticed something about myself that day. I noticed that I was foolish. I had foolishly disobeyed my parents, and I had foolishly tried to cover up my disobedience, as if that was even possible. All that to say, simply this, you can learn a lot from a fool. Don't be like him. And tonight, we are called to a similar task as we look at Psalm 14. We have the fool put before us. And I want to urge you, don't be like him. In fact, as we walk through Psalm 14 tonight, learn from the fool that you may learn to live in truth and righteousness. Well, let's look at uh, the first verse, which is also... I'm going to cue us into the first filling on your outline there, if you're taking notes. And that is that the fool suppresses the truth. The first thing we learn from the fool is that the fool suppresses the truth. And we see that here in verse 1, don't we? The fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And then what marks this fool? Well, he himself and those like him, they are all corrupt. They do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. And so we see then that as the Bible is holding before us the fool, uh, it's not necessarily talking about stupidity on the intellectual scale. Uh, In fact, when we look at the further descriptions of the fool who says in his heart there is no God, uh, he's one who acts wickedly, the one who does not do good. In fact, I'm sure many of you could think of many intellectual people uh, who do or who have done horrific acts. Think of the sophisticated planning that goes into mass destruction. We even have weapons of mass destruction. And it takes the brightest minds of our earth to come up with nuclear weapons. And they're not always made to uh, defend a country. Some of them are are made uh, to incite fear and terror in people. It takes brilliance. It takes intellectual capacity. We can think of the horrific and tragic mass shootings. And once... The FBI and other agencies start analyzing uh, the mass shooting. They see all the planning and the, uh, the sophisticated thinking that has gone through a mass shooting or a genocide. Right? We can think of twisted yet brilliant world leaders who have been successful in killing millions of people. I don't think anyone would say Hitler was dull or dumb or lacked in intellectual ability. No, he leveraged all of that to do wicked things. And so the fool, according to Psalm 14, 
is one who has a great moral deficiency and not necessarily a deficiency in what we simply or typically think of in terms of intellectual capacity. In fact, most of what is called the intellectual elite today, the Bible would classify as the fool. In fact, you can think of many of our educational institutions, our institutions of higher education in North America and in Europe. Uh, They operate off the assumption of what the fool says in his heart right here in verse 1. There is no God. Or they at least attempt to strategically steer clear of ever having to weigh in one way or another. But we see that such an attempt... Such an assertion, such a statement, is utter foolishness. But it is connected to corruption. It is connected to abominable deeds. And that's perhaps the best reason we can see why the fool would make such a foolish statement in his heart that there is no God. In fact, I think the best way to understand this phrase, or we could even call it the repeated chorus of the heart of the fool is that this is an act of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And here's the truth. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Of course, the truth being is that there is a God. And he is a God who is worthy of our honor. In fact, he's also the honor, as in the judge of the earth. If, if you know earthly judge or courtroom language, they call the judge your honor. And so there is a God, a righteous God, who sits in judgment over the earth. And Paul says the unrighteous suppress this truth in their unrighteousness. And so suppression of the truth, saying to oneself, there is no God, is not an intellectual statement in terms of someone has sifted through all the data that the world has to offer. They've sifted through all the uh, the scriptures and come to that conclusion with with, uh, great intellect. But it's a conclusion that one comes to as a coping mechanism for their own unrighteousness. Because if a righteous God exists... And if one stops and lets their conscience be free from distraction just for a moment, if one refrains from being deluged with entertainment or adrenaline or drugs or some kind of diversion, if one stops looking only to himself in the delusion that he is a self-made man or that he's evolved from some lower beast of the earth, if one stops for a moment and thinks clearly, then the reality sets in. Uh Uh-oh. There is a God. He is righteous. I am not. I'm done for. So the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness happens largely as a coping mechanism for the fool. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. Let me live another day in peace. On occasion, I had to pack my parachute in the military. And we sometimes used canopies that would deploy by a smaller parachute called a spring-loaded pilot chute. 
And when I had to pack the parachute, that was the worst part of packing the parachute, was taking this little parachute that had this thick spring in it uh, that would pull out the bigger chute when you pulled the ripcord. And so what you had to do with this spring-loaded pilot chute is suppress the coil, uh, uh, suppress the spring coil by coil by coil, and each coil got harder and harder to hold down until you had to hold the entire spring down. You had to suppress the entire string or spring. It took a lot of energy. It took a lot of work. And one little slip up with that slippery parachute fabric and that spring would pop up and hit you in the face. Well, that pilot chute is a lot like the truth that there is a God and that he is righteous and I am not. And so the fool has to suppress that truth of a righteous God coil by coil by coil and keep telling himself there is no God, there is no God, even as he keeps all of his weight upon that spring to suppress the truth. If you ever wonder why an atheist then gets so mad and so angry at the God who doesn't exist, it's because of that very reason. They are suppressing the truth of him with a lot of energy and with all their weight. And all you're doing is pointing out that truth and they get so angry at the God who doesn't exist because they're suppressing him actively in their unrighteousness. So that's the fool and that's what he does. That's not all he does. Look with me at verses 2 through 3 as we see here, if you're following me on your outlines, uh, the second point, the fool also does not seek truth. So the fool suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, but the fool also does not seek truth. Uh, Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Who seek after God. And of course, the answer there is found in verse 3, that no, all have turned aside. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. In fact, the greatest good anyone could do as an image bearer of God is to seek after God. But not even one seeks God. Now, how do we understand this first phrase in verse 2? The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. Well, we see that man is put in his proper place. Uh, listen to Ecclesiastes 5.2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. And since man is on earth and God is in heaven, the scriptures often use this as a contrast to show the exalted nature of God and the lowly nature of man, especially when man fails to recognize this reality in his prideful foolishness. Think with me about Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, we had man's attempt to make a name for himself. So what did he do? Well, he built a tower up to heaven. At least that was his attempt. It was the first ancient skyscraper as a monument to man's greatness. And what did God have to do to inspect this great work of man? Did he have to lift his gaze and say, wow, how can I compete with this? No. In Genesis 11, we learn that God came down. From heaven. He stooped from heaven. He condescended from heaven 
to see this great work of man on earth. The way Moses tells that story in Genesis 11 reminds me of flying in an airplane at over 30,000 feet. Things that look big on the earth, like SUVs or houses, uh, even skyscrapers, when viewed from the skies at that distance, are teeny tiny, if visible at all. Well, God had to leave his abode in heaven to even see the grandiose work of man, not because God isn't all-seeing and omnipresent, but to emphasize the folly of man to think himself great or possess the ability to make himself a name to establish his own renown, to seek him in his own renown and his own endeavors rather than God. So God came down from heaven in Genesis 11 to survey a building. In our psalm, Psalm 14, he looks down from heaven here in Psalm 14 to survey the children of man. And what does he find? Well, he finds that the children of man, all of them, uh, have turned aside. Uh, That all of them are corrupt. That none of them seek after him. Not even one does good. And we saw earlier in uh, Romans chapter 3 that uh, this kind of language doesn't just explain the Gentiles, as many Jews would have thought at first read or first hearing of this psalm. Right? It, it It could have been very natural for the people of God to think, well, of course, of course the children of men out there, of course the Gentiles out there, would be so corrupt. But Paul, as we read earlier, reminded us in Romans 3 that all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, this is the, the universal description of all mankind after the fall. Even as we read about in Genesis 6 early, uh, of God's own assessment of the children of man or of the people on the earth. And so this psalm is once again reminding us and presenting for us the universality of the human condition apart from God's gracious saving intervention. If you were to remove the saving grace of God from the scene of this world, this is the assessment that you would have to have for each and every single person who currently walks the face of this earth. This is what we call the total depravity of the total human race. But for the grace of God, we are all fools. And we see then the result uh, here in Psalm 14 of those who do not seek God, who do not seek truth. No good is done. None who does good, not even one. In fact, we could say it this way, that those who do not seek God cannot do good. No one can do good apart from God. Let's flesh that out a little bit more. Let's talk about good from God's perspective as we see it here in Psalm 14. And I think a a situation like a crying baby can help us think through this. Okay, Uh, We often would say things like, it's good to feed a crying baby because babies cry when they're hungry. Okay, And so we might say, just on the surface, and we use language this way, 
Oh, what a good mother. She's going to tend to her baby and feed her baby. Okay? But this is, this is what good is from the biblical perspective. If the intent is to merely get the baby to stop crying, uh, then it's not good according to biblical standards. Okay? As good as it is to have some peace and quiet as a parent, uh, it's not a good uh, deed or good work just to merely get your baby to stop crying by feeding it. Or is it good by merely just satisfying the hunger of the baby out of compassion? That's still not good enough to be good according to the biblical standard of good. And the reason why is because these intentions still fail to lift above the horizontal plane of creaturely existence. Vows 1 and 2 of the covenant of baptism that we heard this morning give a pretty good synopsis of what a good intention and a good action is according to biblical standards. Uh, or you can think of her in terms of providing for a hungry baby. Listen to vow one again that you heard this morning. Do you believe this child is a possession of God entrusted to your care? Okay, and then here's the second question. In this light, do you promise to provide for his or her temporal well-being? Okay, let let me make sure we're all on the same page here. Feeding a baby is providing for their temporal well-being. Okay? But what our vows of baptism remind us okay, is that you don't just provide for the temporal well-being of your children. You do it in light of something. In light of what? Do you believe this child is a possession of God? So parents, as you provide for your children, that's a, that's a good thing. But for it to be good according to biblical standards, the right intent must always be paired with the right action. And so, for it to be good, you must provide for your children. You must feed the hungry baby in light of this child being a possession of God. Okay, Or to put it more broadly, this child belongs to God by virtue of that child being an image bearer, so by way of creation, but this child belongs to him by way of covenant, if it's a child of believing parents. And so, in this light, you feed the baby. You do good in light of who God is and in light of who this person is in their relationship to God. And so, a good deed that Psalm 14, doing good, as verse 3 talks about, is that kind of good. And when the Lord looks down upon the children of man, those who have... uh, uh, Existed in the wake of the fall, and there's no, been no intervention of his uh, redemptive grace in their lives, not a single individual does good. Not a single individual takes into account that in light of who God is, and in light of what my responsibility is to this fellow image bearer, this good I must do. And that's the type of good that we're talking about here. And it's good, then, for us to take a step back and ask ourselves some pointed questions. As we have a lot of good actions uh, that we are called to as Christians. 
because even as Christians, we can fall short of doing the good uh, that the scriptures speak of if we don't have uh, the right uh, reference point, the right in this light, or the right motive or intent. And so husbands, why do you do what you do towards your wives? We're going to get into this in, in Ephesians in the weeks ahead. But do you do things just to keep the peace with your wife? Do you actually do things to push her buttons? Wives, why do you do what you do? Just to please your husband? Maybe to spite him at times? Or parents, why do you raise children the way that you do? Just to have well-behaved, well-mannered children to not embarrass you at dinner parties? Or perhaps to live vicariously through them? You may do good things to your children, but if, if these are the intents uh, and the motivations, then it is not good according to biblical standards. Children, how about you? Why do you, why do you listen to your parents? Is it just to please them? If so, it's good to listen to your parents, but to truly honor them, you need to honor them in the Lord. You need to obey them, knowing that God has given them to you as an authority in your life, and so you obey them as you obey God. And so we must always take a step back and assess the good that we may think we're doing and check our hearts and check our motives and intentions and make sure that our gaze lifts above the horizontal plane of why we do what we do. So no one does good, not even one. That is God's assessment, the Lord God's assessment of the children of man. Um, Isaiah would put it this way. Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And so, the fool does not seek after God. And as Isaiah introduces to us this next concept, uh, the fool also does not call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, that's what we have next in Psalm uh, 14 here in verse uh, 4. And we'll take verses 4 through 7 then as a chunk. And we'll see here, in light of the fool not calling on the name of the Lord, we'll say here that the fool then is sinfully silent. The fool is sinfully silent. Or as the psalmist puts this reality at the end of verse 4, they do not call upon the Lord. And this is primarily because the fool and the multitude like him have their mouths full. We talked about feeding babies earlier as an illustration. Now a different kind of feeding comes into view from our text. When we look at what is embedded in the question of verse 4, we see that the fool and those like him, they eat up people like bread. They sustain themselves on devouring people and their livelihood. But we see that this is not just any people, mind you. It is my people. And it is here that we begin to see a pivot point in this psalm. From all the children of man to two different categories of people. The my people of verse 4. If you want to follow along with me there. 
the generation of the righteous in verse 5. The poor who have taken refuge in the Lord there in verse 6. And then verse 7 is littered with them. Uh, Israel, his people, Jacob, and Israel. And so we have seen then here in verse 4 through 7 a shift of gears or a pivot point in this psalm. In fact, we can say that this psalm moves from the first three verses uh, that deals with the universality of sin and corruption in human nature. It moves from that to the particularity of salvation or the particularity of redemption of the kind of person who will be saved out of this corruption and this foolishness. Uh, If you want to tie those all together in verses 4 through 7, at least in the ESV, you just have to follow the R words. Uh, You can see there, uh, there are four R words that uh, offset a certain people group from the fool. Uh, In verse 5, there's the righteous In verse 6, there are those who have taken refuge. And then in verse 7, you could say there are the restored ones, as the Lord's going to restore his people, and also the rejoicing ones. Uh, They're at the end of verse 7. But even as the psalm shifts gears, and there's this pivot point here in verse 4, I also want to point out uh, that the evildoers, or those who engage in the suppression of truth, Uh, Those who don't seek God, or the fool who says in his heart there is no God, he's not quite out of the picture just yet. Look at verse 5. There they are in great terror. Okay. No matter how much the truth of God is suppressed throughout one's life, We are reminded here in verse 5 that there will be no final suppression of this last reality. That one day all fools will come to great terror. And so as this psalm develops and it points out to us the fool, it also then points out to us the final destination uh, of the fool. What happens at the end of the fool's life? And so the most important question that any of us have to answer as we come to this psalm is where do we place ourselves? In other words, am I the fool or am I the righteous? For in the end, as this psalm requests for salvation or deliverance or redemption, in the end, it is only the righteous who will be saved. And so are you the fool or are you the righteous? Well, as we see these last few verses develop, and you're not sure, let me help you. We see that the righteous are those who have taken refuge in the Lord. There in verse 6. The righteous are those who have acknowledged their foolishness and fled to the only refuge there is. 
The righteous are those who have acknowledged that, in line with the request of verse 7, that salvation will only come out of Zion. Not just any religion of the world, but salvation is out of Zion. Salvation is from the Jews. Or as Jesus would tell the woman at the well in John 4.22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. In case you're not sure what that means, let's go to Paul as he unpacks uh, that concept for us in Romans 9, 4 through 5. He says, they are Israelites, speaking of the Jews, that Jesus referred to as salvation being from the Jews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so... This request of verse 7, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, has been granted. It has been granted in Jesus Christ, who has come from the Jews, according to the flesh, as God over all. But salvation is not only from the Jews, it is also for the Jews. In fact, it is only for Israel, as the request makes clear. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. So if you are to be one of the righteous, you can only be righteous, you can only be saved, you can only be uh, declared righteous in the sight of God if you are Israel, if you are a true Jew. Okay? So who are then true Israelites or true Jews? Well, Romans 9, 6 tells us, uh, helps us answer this. It says, It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the first thing we need to notice is that to be a true Jew doesn't uh, necessarily mean you've descended physically in the flesh from Jewish ancestors. For even those who have descended from Israel are not all Israel. Paul helps us further in Galatians 3, 7, when he says, Understand then that those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. In other words, to be the true Israel of God, you must have faith. Faith in the one that came from the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as Paul says in Philippians 3, 3, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. To be righteous, you can put no faith or confidence in your own flesh, in your own efforts, in your own intellect. Your faith and confidence must rest in Jesus Christ alone. And so the fool is sinfully silent, and he will be in great terror because he does not call upon the Lord. However, The fool must know, even now, that the call goes out to him, even him, that if he calls on the name of the Lord, if he stops 
eating the people of God. He stops devouring them with his mouth. Stops slandering them. Stops speaking maliciously against them. That even if he calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved. In fact, that's what the prophet Joel declared. And I have it written for you on the front of your bulletin there if you want to follow along. Prophet Joel tells us, and everyone, let me say that again, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord promised, among the remnant called by the Lord. Once again, salvation is for Israel, it only comes out of Zion as it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, excuse me, uh, the Apostle Peter, picking up this same verse, uh, became the main point of his preaching. As he said in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So how about you? No matter how foolish you have been in the past, no matter how foolish you are now, no matter how sinful you are, or for how long you've been sinful or foolish, even you are called to call upon the name of the Lord. And the promise still stands that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul tells us in Romans 10, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so tonight, as we've considered the fool, if that is you, if you have lived in the act of suppression that there is no God or in the suppression of the fact that on judgment day it won't matter there is no judge there is no judge who will judge righteously if you've been reciting that mantra in your head you've been suppressing the truth and it might be getting you through day by day but the suppression of the truth will never get you through that last great day that day of terror for those who continue to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But those who live by calling upon the name of the Lord, those who sing God's praises rather than attempt to suppress God's presence, God is with them. So is God with you? Have you made the Lord your refuge? Salvation comes out of Zion alone. Salvation comes By faith alone, in Christ alone. He is no fool who puts his trust in him. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that so often as we read in scripture about the fool, we are oftentimes reminded of our own hearts, of our own minds, of our own lives. Oftentimes we see more of ourselves and our qualities and our traits in the fool than in the righteous. And so, Lord, we ask your forgiveness. We ask your forgiveness for all the ways in which we have suppressed truths in our hearts.
for all the times in which we have lived in the state of our corruption, as if you would never call us to account, even for every idle word. And so, Lord, forgive us for living lives as if you don't exist. Lord, forgive us for not seeking you, even in times like this when you draw near to us. And so, Lord, extend your kindness and your mercy to us. And, Lord, stir us up to call upon your name. For those who have never done so for salvation, Lord, we pray that you would grant your sovereign grace to them and draw them to yourself. But, Lord, even those who have been drawn near to you in salvation through Jesus Christ, Lord, we know that we are gathered each week to call upon your name in worship, to rejoice and to be glad in you. And so, Lord, help us to do that even this evening and help us to do that each Lord's Day this week as we take Psalm 14 upon our lips. May we do so with great joy and gladness as the true Israel of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.